Exodus 7, verses 1 through 13. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I have commanded you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Amen. As we continue our study of the book of Exodus today, we come to Exodus chapter 7 and 8, which sounds like a ton of material, and it is actually, but don't worry, I'm not going to try to cover it all. I'm going to summarize actually most of it, but I'm going to cover enough of it to make this singular point. And it's a big point. In fact, it's a point that if you're not a believer in Jesus, might seem a little bit off-putting to you at first, and so I'm going to ask you to give me a little grace on it on the front end, know that I'm going to try to explain it and hopefully make it a little bit more palatable. But the point is this. It is that the God of the Bible is, in the final analysis, the only God, here's the big part, in all the earth, worth listening to. Crazy, right? Because there's a lot of gods. And it sounds arrogant, and I just want to put that on the table and let you know that I know that it sounds arrogant. It, it, it does. It, it sounds arrogant, but it's not arrogant if it's true. In that case, it's just a fact. And if it sounds arrogant, then I want you to know that it's not an arrogance that's unique to Christianity. In other words, there are lots of gods and there are lots of religions, and every single god and every single religion claims some kind of exclusive hold on the truth. Is that not the case? And even people who do not believe in God and do not believe in religion and you know, think that we're worse off for all of that believe that they, together with everyone else who believes the same thing they do, have some kind of exclusive claim on that truth. It's really not an arrogance thing. It's just the nature of the conversation. So let me give it to you again. The big point that I want to begin to make today and continue to develop the next couple weeks is simply that the God of the Bible, guys, is in the final analysis. The only God in all the earth worth listening to. If you've been with us on this journey through the book of Exodus, then you know that we've watched as God has met with Moses out at the burning bush, out in the wilderness, and he called this man to go back to Egypt from whence he had come 40 years earlier when he was rejected by the Israelites and exiled by the Egyptians and to go back now to deliver the Israeli people from slavery in the land of Egypt where they had been enslaved for 400 years. 
years. And God, very graciously also, told Moses in advance how every aspect of the mission would go out. He'd say, listen, you're going to go here, you're going to say this, and this is what's going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen. I love that he did that for Moses. And we've seen how God has been absolutely 100% correct on everything. He said, look, when you show up in Egypt and you go to the elders of the Israelites and you tell them, that is <laughs> crazy as it sounds, you, the one that they'd rejected, are actually the one that I've met with and that I've called to become their deliverer, Moses, they're going to believe you. And, and they have believed him. And then God said, and when you go to Pharaoh and you tell him, let my people go, look, he's going to let you go eventually, but you're going to get a bunch of no's. And the reason you're going to get a bunch of no's, at least for a while, is because I, God, am going to harden the heart of Pharaoh. Why am I going to harden the heart of Pharaoh? Because I am looking for an opportunity to display my power and my glory over this man who was himself worshipped as a god and over the entire Egyptian pantheon of gods that my people have been exposed to for over 400 years. In other words, Moses, when you lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt, they will know for sure that I and I alone am the only God on all the earth worth listening to. And not only will they know it, Moses, you will know it. Pharaoh will know it. And don't miss this. A whole bunch of Egyptians will know it. And in fact, when we finally get to the, the part of the passage where it talks about in a few weeks, where Moses leads them out, you realize that what he leads out, we're told, is a mixed multitude. What does that mean? It means a racially mixed multitude. In other words, Israelites obviously leave with Moses, but a whole bunch of Egyptians get the point. They get the message. They realize, wait a minute, this is the only God on all the earth worth listening to, and they leave with them. Think about that. Think about what it would take for an Egyptian who is a part of a race of people who for 400 years has oppressed these Israelites, and in their generation in particular, oppressed them more powerfully than ever before. Okay, what would it take for somebody like that to leave their home, to leave their family, to leave their community of friends, to leave their farm, to leave their business, to leave everything that they can't carry with them behind, and to then leave the land of Egypt, which itself is like an oasis in the desert? It's a lush, beautiful, amazing, incredible place and everything else is wilderness. To then go out into the wilderness as a minority with this group of people that the day before were your slaves. Think about that. It's actually a very evangelistic story. The story of the plagues. It's curious. So God said to Moses, okay, so here's the deal. You're going to go see Pharaoh. And you're going to say, let my people go. And Pharaoh's going to say no. And that's exactly what's happened. But that's not all that Pharaoh said. He also uttered this statement that, that begins this contest now between God and Pharaoh and all of the gods of Egypt. When Moses went the first time to see Pharaoh, Pharaoh said this. He says, Moses, who is the Lord? In other words, who is this God of the Bible that you profess to represent? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice as opposed to my own voice? Because, hey, newsflash, maybe you forgot, but I'm also worshipped as a god. Or, as opposed to the voice of any of the Egyptian pantheon of gods, my whole land is full of gods. Why should I listen to his voice as opposed to my own or one of theirs? In other words, Moses, why is the God of the Bible the only God worth listening to? So with that question in mind then, we pick up our study in Exodus 7 beginning in verse 1. 
where we read this. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. And the reason that I say that, Moses, is because here's how it's going to play out. You shall speak all that I command you to your brother Aaron, and then your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh what I've said to you, which, by the way, is to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But he's not going to let the people of Israel go out of his land because I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and even though I multiply my signs and wonders, meaning all of these plagues that I'm now about to begin to send in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you, but then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And I thought I'd just stop there for a second. Because you oftentimes hear God talked about as a God of judgment, particularly the Old Testament God, like he's different. You know, that's a, no, it's, no, it's the same God. What's the purpose of this judgment? Because it's coming, man. Judgment upon judgment upon... What, what is the purpose? Because it isn't condemnation. It's freedom. By means of these crushing judgments, God is going to deliver His people, Israel, out of 400 years of slavery. And oh, incidentally, by means of these same crushing judgments, He's going to offer the same salvation to any Egyptian who realizes by means of these judgments that he too is a slave. He's a slave of all the wrong gods. And he's willing then to realize that, wait a minute, the treasure is not money. The treasure is not my house. The treasure is not my friend group. The treasure is not Egypt, though it was full of treasure, literally. The treasure is God himself. So I'm going with those guys. It's salvation through judgment. It's remarkably gracious. And God continues. He says, in fact, the Egyptians, the Egyptians shall know what? That I and I alone in the idea am the Lord. And here's when they'll know it. They'll know it when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. And so then having heard all of this, Moses and Aaron then did so. That is to say, they did just as the Lord commanded them. And now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they went and spoke to Pharaoh now this second time. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, when you go in to meet with him again, Prove yourselves, guys. Show me that you really are messengers of a God who alone is worth listening to. And do that by working a miracle. Then here's the miracle I want you to work. It's very specific and very significant. He says, then you, Moses, shall say to Aaron, Aaron, take your staff, right? And cast it down on the ground before Pharaoh so that it may become a serpent, which is hugely significant, particularly if you're like Pharaoh or the Egyptians. Now, why do I say that? Because they had a serpent god. I mean, it was one of their many gods. They worshipped the serpent god named Necroonk, which is really interesting because it means beautiful life. And we know from the scripture, however, that the serpent has brought us anything but a beautiful life, hasn't he? So what is the message to them then? Okay, Aaron, take your staff, this dead stick, and throw it down before Pharaoh, and now it becomes a living serpent. What is God saying to Pharaoh and, and this small little group of people who have gathered in his private chamber for this little bit of a showdown privately with Moses and Aaron? 
He's saying, listen, I have the ability to make serpents out of dead sticks. Good grief. You want to know who God is? It's me. You know, incidentally, since the miracle ends when Aaron reaches back down and grabs that same serpent by the tail and it becomes his staff again, I also have the ability, Pharaoh, to take living serpents like you, sir, and to make them into dead sticks. Pharaoh, as you'll recall, was openly identified with the serpent. He wore the Uraeus crown, the serpent poised to strike on his forehead. It's remarkable. And you think, well, you know, that's an interesting little history lesson there. But, like, what is the message for us? Because the message for us is far greater. And the reason we know that is because we have the Bible, guys. And we understand, because we have the Scriptures, that the serpent is the very emblem of evil. I mean, if you think about it, when Satan entered into the Garden of Eden to deceive our first parents into doing what? Into believing that God is actually not a God worth believing, a God worth listening to. He comes to them with this statement. He says, did God really say? Saying, doubt the Word of God. Okay, when he came into the Garden to do that, he did not come as a Labrador retriever. He didn't come as a beagle. He didn't come as a golden doodle. He didn't come as a dog, did he? He only had three options, okay? Rat, cat, and serpent. That's it, right? Rat, cat, and serpent. And I'm pretty sure it was a coin toss between the cat and the serpent. I just... All right, so here's the deal. Every time I make a cat joke, my wife just dies a thousand deaths. And then she comes to me after the service and she says, Tom, don't you understand? I mean, you're going to offend somebody with these cat jokes. So these people love their cats. They put pictures of their cats on Instagram. I'm like, honey, people eat bugs too. I mean, that's just crazy, man. I, you know, they jump out of airplanes. I don't understand that either. She's like, no, 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 but you need to tell them that you're really kidding. So I'm kidding. He comes as a serpent. And the serpent becomes the very emblem of evil in the Bible. And it makes the serpent, does it not, kind of a curious choice for God? God takes the, the staff of the first high priest of Israel and he turns it into a serpent, which doesn't make any sense until you continue to read the story and then consider it in light of what the Bible says about Christ. For we now read in verse 10, that Moses and Aaron then went to Pharaoh and they did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a living servant or serpent. But then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers of Egypt and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same thing. But how did they do it? By their dark and secret arts is the idea for each man cast down his staff and their staffs also became serpents. And you're like, well, why would God do that? Like, why would he allow them to do it? Like, they're messing up his miracle. No! Nothing is messing up anything. This is going exactly the way the Lord wants it to. For look what happens next. It says, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Or let me put it differently. The serpent of God then swallowed up all of the serpents of darkness, manifesting God's power over the serpent God of Israel, or I mean of Egypt, and over the serpent king of Egypt, but sending a pretty powerful message to us too because we have the New Testament. So then we know stories like the one that we find in 
in the Gospel of John chapter 3, where Nicodemus, this, this man, comes to Jesus at night, and he comes to him with a question. And the question is, Jesus, who are you? Like, what makes you unique? Because you claim to be unique in all the earth. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, is there a more exclusive statement that you could ever possibly make? And what does the Lord say? Because if I can just take the whole conversation and summarize it, he says, well, I'm unique in all the earth because I am the serpent of God. I and I alone am the one who can swallow up all of your darkness by taking to my otherwise holy and perfect self all of your sin, all of your shame, all of your guilt, all of your failures, all of your mistakes, all of your foolishness, all of your many immaturities, all of your pride, all of your selfishness, all of the hurts that you've inflicted and the hurts you've received. I, I take that to myself, do you see? And I nail it to a cross. And in the sacrifice of my own life, I put it wholly and entirely and for forever to death for you. That you might be made new. That you might, as he uses the language of that story, be born again, a different person. One filled with the Spirit of the Lord, one forgiven and washed, one made new and made clean. So why is the God of the Bible the only God worth listening to? Well, you know, we'll make a list over the next couple weeks, I guess, but let's start with this, because there is no other God and there is no other religion in the entirety of the earth that even offers to do something like that, much less accomplishes it. But Pharaoh's not convinced, and so we continue to read in verse 13. It says, Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron as the Lord had said, which now gives the Lord the opportunity to take this private quarrel that to now has just happened in Pharaoh's private chambers out to the whole land of Egypt. He goes public with it. So the Lord then said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people of Israel go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile River to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turns into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to you saying, let my people go so that you may serve me in the wilderness or they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed, which means that you Pharaoh have not yet been convinced that the God of the Bible is, well, the only God worth listening to. So thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile. And in the Middle East, water is the emblem of life. I mean, if you just look at the Middle East, it's sand. But not next to the water. It's the emblem of life. So behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water, which is the very emblem of life that is in the Nile, and this water shall turn into blood, which is the very emblem of death, and then the fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile, and thus the entire land of Egypt, which was built entirely along the Nile River and all of its tributaries up in the Nile Delta, 
will stink like death. And Egyptians were particularly sensitive to the smell of corruption and of death. And the reason that I say that is because, as we've talked about in the past, their theology of the afterlife required the preservation of the physical body. That's why they perfected the science of mummification. So corruption and death smelled like hell to them like the denial of the afterlife to them. It was the smell they feared the most. And what the Lord is saying is, hey, I'm going to strike the Nile River and it's going to go from the emblem of life to the emblem of death. Oh, by the way, the fish are then all going to die. And the entirety of Egypt, which is built along the river and in the delta and all its tributaries, is going to be filled with the smell that you fear the most. The smell of the denial of the afterlife. Oh, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile or any of its tributaries or wherever else water could be found. So when you read the story, it's fascinating. It says that even the water that they had taken from the Nile, you know, that was clean. I mean, like it was water and they had it in containers and they stored it in their home. Even that water turned to blood. That would be disconcerting. Like if you've got one of those little Brita filter, you know, dealies and you filled it up with water and it filtered, which is a germaphobe, I love that. Like it just, you can't filter it enough. So anyway, it filters down and it's nice and it's clear and it's cool and you've got it in your refrigerator and you wake up the next day and you go to pour yourself a glass and now it is blood. That would be terrifying. But it's a lot more terrifying to Pharaoh and the Egyptians even than that. And here's why. Because the Egyptians had a very sophisticated understanding of the physical body. They understood the circulatory system of the human body. They understood that the heart pumps the blood and the blood goes through the veins and the arteries and all the capillaries and keeps the person alive, animates them, if you will. They got that and they applied that to their mythology. So they believed that the Nile River with all of its tributaries was the circulatory system of the god Osiris, who is the god of life and of resurrection. He's always portrayed as being in the color green. That's the color of his flesh. Why? Because green is the color of life. Again, if you look at Egypt from the sky, it's desert, it's desert, it's desert all along the Nile and through the delta. What color is it? It's green. It's a garden. He brings life to the whole land and to the nation. He's the God of resurrection. He's the God who in their mythology was killed by his evil brother, but then raised from the dead by his stepsister Isis. Remarkable. So then what must they have thought then as they watched the circulatory system of the God Osiris who gave life to their whole land as it flowed with the emblem of the water of life. Okay, now flow with the emblem of death itself, with blood that then killed all the fish, that then filled all the land with the smell of death, the, the smell they feared the most. The denial of the afterlife. Like what happened to Osiris? You want to talk about total domination by the true and the living God. It's remarkable. But here again, we're told that Pharaoh's magicians are able to replicate this miracle. They're able to turn more water into more blood. And you're like, yeah, see, they come along, they mess up God's miracle. Why would he let that happen? They're not messing up his miracle. They're playing into his hand. What are they manifesting? They're, they're demonstrating to Pharaoh and everybody else that to resist the will of this God who alone is worth listening to is utterly futile. It makes no sense at all. They can't turn blood into water, guys. All they're doing is making the problem worse. It's crazy. But Pharaoh's heart is hardened. 
and he doesn't let them go. So God says, all right, this time I'm going to send a plague that moves out of the water and up onto the dry ground. I'm going to fill the land with frogs. Why does that matter? That's a direct shot at the Egyptian god Heket, who is the goddess of fertility. In hieroglyph, a frog means multiplication. God says, okay, you want to see fertility? I'm going to show you fertility, and I'm going to do it in a way that utterly mocks your God of fertility. I'm going to overwhelm you with frogs, frogs in your bed, frogs in your sink, frogs in your cupboards, frogs in your walls, frogs in your floor, frogs hanging off of your light fixture, which, you know, I mean, that's, that's crazy, right? Frogs in the street, frogs everywhere. And once again, the magicians replicate the miracle, thus making matters worse. Like if I'm Pharaoh, I'm going, listen, I'm taking your license to do magic away. Like this is, this is not working. Make the frogs go away. Every time we try, it just turns into more frogs. It's ridiculous on purpose. So Pharaoh, who liked frogs about as much as maybe I like cats, um, calls Moses in and says, okay, so here's the thing. Uh, we got to get rid of the frogs, man. Like if you guys want to go have your worship service out in the wilderness or whatever, I'll let you do it. Just get rid of the frogs. So Moses says, fine, I'll get rid of the frogs. He prays and God answers, but not by making the frogs retreat. He answers by making the frogs die right where they are. So now you have dead frogs in your bed and dead frogs in your sink and in your tub and in your cupboards and, well, probably not on the light fixture unless it fell in and now you got to get on a chair. So that's really inconvenient. Dead frogs in your floor and all over the street. They pile the frogs up in heaps. And how does the land smell now? Better or worse? It's unbelievable. The smell of death is pervading the whole land of Egypt. But Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And again, he, he says, no, 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 you know what, I changed my mind. And God says, that's fine. Now I'm going to make plagues move up from out of the dry ground into the air. And he sends gnats. A plague of gnats. Swarms of gnats, which is a direct shot at the Egyptian god Geb, who was the god of the earth. God's like, all right, let me show you who the god of the earth is. I'm going to make the earth produce gnats. Pretty sure nobody else can do that. And oh, by the way, the magicians try. Yeah, that one doesn't work. And they come to Pharaoh and they say, hey, um, <clears throat> sir, uh, well, we weren't even able to make it worse this time. So we, this is the finger of God. You, you, you need to relent. Like you've, you've got to just do what he wants and, and, and Pharaoh will not let them go. And so then the Lord sends flies, which is a direct shot at the Egyptian god Kephri, who is the god of creation, often depicted with the head of a fly. And just to make sure that everyone knows that these flies have not arrived because of all the dead fish and frogs, God tells Pharaoh through Moses in advance that only the Egyptians are going to be afflicted by the plague of flies. So in other words, the Israelites, though they live in the center of all of you people, are not going to have any fly issues at all. So here's what God did, and it's totally cheesy, but I can't resist it. He created a no-fly zone for Israel. <laughs> right? I know you want to groan. Like, if you're under 30 right now, you want to leave. I get it. It's okay. It's all right. I don't care. Well, I care, but not much. Um, it's crazy. And you wonder about the Egyptians, whether they were crazy. You look at all these gods, I don't know, frogs and gnats and rivers and flies. Like, who worships 
the Lord of the fly. Like, what's the point of that? Well, the point is that these people didn't have those really cool lamps that drew the fly in, you know, they draws it and then electrocutes them on that metal grate. Like, they didn't have any of that stuff. And so what they would do is they would worship the gods, if you will, that control things like flies with the hope then that they would be relieved of these kinds of plagues. And God is coming along and going, hey, glad you guys have all been worshiping the God of the fly, the God of creation, since that's ridiculous. Let me show you who the real God is. And let me create that no-fly zone as a means of evangelizing the Egyptians. What is God saying? He's saying, hey, listen, right dead center in the middle of you people, (laughs) okay, is a group of people that know me. You want out of oppression? Join them. And as I said, many of them end up doing exactly that. And I think in defense of, of these ancient people who worshiped in very unsophisticated ways, at least from our perspective, I think that they would turn right around and and say to us, hey, you know, we're not nearly as unsophisticated as you think, A. And B, take a look at your gods because they are frankly far more damning than flies and a whole heck of a lot more enslaving. Something to think about. But Pharaoh hardens his heart again. And that's where we'll pick it up next week. So read ahead and do your personal worship this week. Because we're going to continue to develop this idea that, all right, the God of the Bible is, in the final analysis, the only God in all the earth worth listening to, which again is arrogant unless it's true. And here's what else is true, okay? What else is true is that every religion, every God in this world, except for Christianity, comes to me and comes to you and says, hey, you know what? You're in a mess. You made the mess. And you also are the way out of the mess. In other words, you are the answer to the problem of your own failures. And here's how you get out of it, by doing good things and being a good person. And that is utterly despairing. And the reason I say that is because there's no consensus amongst all these different world religions and gods who, again, all claim to have some exclusive hold on the truth. It's the way it works as to what good even means. So how do you know if you're good or if you're doing good or if you've done good? More than that, there's no consensus amongst all of the various world religions who, again, all claim to have an exclusive hold on the truth as to how much good you have to do. Is it 51% or 91%? What is it? And how do I know if I've hit the mark? And oh, by the way, there's no consensus on who decides why because they all claim to have some exclusive hold on the truth. Christianity comes to me and comes to you and says something that resonates, I think, deep down in our hearts. I think we know this, and that is that we've blown it and we can't fix it. We've made a mess of our lives and we can't clean it all up. We can't make it acceptable to a God who we know instinctively is utterly and amazingly holy. And that's a problem that God in Christ alone has solved. The serpent of God who has done what? Who takes to himself all of our darkness and sin and guilt and shame and failure and mistake and silliness and immaturity and impurity, the whole shooting match, guys. And in love for us gives his life that we might be free of that forgiven and brought into a relationship with God. 
that's unique in all the earth. And there is no other God or religion that even offers that, much less accomplishes it. So, why is the God of the Bible the only God worth listening to? Well, for starters, for that reason. But then what is the call of Christianity? The call of Christianity really is to do what those Egyptians that left Egypt with the Israelites did. It is to realize that Christ is life's greatest treasure, and it is to follow him. It is to bring your mess to him, to be forgiven, but then to give your life to him. It's not one or the other, it's both. And to go out with him into the wilderness and to realize that it's actually sweeter there than in Egypt because you're with him. So I hope that you would consider that, okay? As we close, let's pray. Father, we thank you for these amazing, incredible stories of deliverance, but we thank you, Lord, for the amazing, incredible story of deliverance that belongs to every person who is honest about themselves and who comes to you with their life and with all their stuff and deposits the whole of themselves at your feet and says, here, make me new, make me clean, forgive and heal me, make me whole, and then take me wherever it is you want to lead. Lord, I pray that you would give us faith by which to do that this day. In Jesus' name, amen.